0: Chapter number seven of Other People's Money. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Thomas Kuzmarski, John K. Thomas. Other People's Money by Louis D. Brandes, chapter seven. Big Men and Little Business. J.P. Morgan & Co. declare... In a letter to the Pujo Committee, that practically all the railroad and industrial development of this country has taken place initially through the medium of the great banking houses. That statement is entirely unfounded, in fact. On the contrary, nearly every such contribution to our comfort and prosperity was initiated without their aid. The great banking houses came into relation with these enterprises either after successes had been attained or upon reorganization after the possibility of success had been demonstrated, but the funds of the hardy pioneers who had risked their all were exhausted. This is true of our early railroads, of our early street railways, and of the automobile, of the telegraph, and the wireless, of gas and oil, of harvesting machinery, and of our steel industry, of textile, paper, and shoe industries, and of nearly every other important branch of manufacture. The initiation of each of these enterprises may properly be categorized as great transactions, and the men who contributed the financial aid and business management necessary for their introduction are entitled to share equally with inventors, in our gratitude for what has been accomplished. But the instances are extremely rare where the original financing of such enterprises was undertaken by investment bankers, great or small. It was usually done by some common businessman, accustomed to taking risks, or by some well-to-do friend of the inventor or pioneer, who was influenced largely by considerations other than money-getting, Here and there you will find that banker aid was given, but usually, in those cases, it was a small local banking concern, not a great banking house, which helped to initiate the undertaking. Railroads. We have come to associate the great bankers with railroads, but their part was not conspicuous in the early history of the eastern railroads, and in the Middle West, the experience was, to some extent, similar. The Boston and Maine Railroad owns and leases 2,215 miles of line, but it is a composite of about 166 separate railroad companies. The New Haven Railroad owns and leases 1,996 miles of line, but it is a composite of 112 separate railroad companies the necessary capital to build these little roads was gathered together partly through state county or municipal aid partly from businessmen or landholders who sought to advance their special interests partly from inventors and partly from well-to-do public-spirited men who wished to promote the welfare of their particular communities about 75 years after the first of these railroads was built j p morgan co became fiscal agent for all of them by creating the new haven boston and maine monopoly steamships the history of our steamships lines is similar in eighteen o seven robert fulton with the financial aid of robert r livingston a judge and statesman, not a banker demonstrated with the clermont that it was practicable to propel boats by stream. In 1833, the three Cunard brothers of Halifax and 232 other persons, stockholders of the Quebec and Halifax Steam Navigation Company, joined in supplying about $80,000 to build the Royal William, the first steamer to cross the Atlantic. In 1902, many years after individual enterprises had developed practically all the great ocean lines. J.P. Morgan Co. floated the international mercantile marine with its $52,744,000 of four and a half bonds, now selling at 60, and $100 million of stock, preferred and common, on which no dividend has ever been paid. It was just 62 years after the first regular line of transatlantic steamers, the Cunard, was founded that Mr. Morgan organized the shipping trust. Telegraph The story of the Telegraph is similar. The money for developing Morse's invention was supplied by his partner and co-worker, Alfred Vail. The initial line, from Washington to Baltimore, was built with an appropriation of 30000 made by Congress in 1843. Sixty-six years later, J.P. Morgan & Co. became bankers for the Western Union through financing its purchase by the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. Harvesting Machinery Next to railroads and steamships, harvesting machinery has probably been the most potent factor in the development of America, and most important of the harvesting machines, was Cyrus H. McCormick's reaper. That made it possible to increase the grain harvest 20 or 30-fold. No investment banker had any part in introducing this great businessman's invention. McCormick was, without means, but William Butler Ogden, a railroad builder, ex-mayor and leading citizen of Chicago, supplied $25,000 dollars with which the first factory was built there in 1847 45 years later j p morgan and co performed the service of combining the five great harvester companies and receiving a commission of 3 million dollars the concerns then consolidated as the international harvester company with a capital stock of 120 million dollars had despite their huge assets and earning power been previously capitalized in the aggregate, at only $10,500,000, strong evidence that in all the preceding years no investment banker had financed them. Indeed, McCormick was as able in business as in mechanical invention. Two years after Ogden paid him $25,000 for a half interest in the business, McCormick bought it back for $50,000, and thereafter, until his death, in 1884, no one but members of the McCormick family had any interest in the business. The Banker Era. It may be urged that railroads and steamships, the telegraph and harvesting machinery, were introduced before the accumulation of investment capital had developed the investment banker, and before America's great banking houses had been established, and that, consequently, it would be fairer to inquire what services bankers had rendered in connection with later industrial development the firm of j p morgan and co is fifty-five years old kuhn loeb and co fifty-six years old lee higginson and co over fifty years and kidder peabody and co forty-eight years and yet the investment banker seems to have had almost as little part in initiating the great improvements of the last half-century as did bankers in the earlier period steel the modern steel industry of america is forty-five years old the great bankers had no part in initiating it Andrew Carnegie, then already a man of large means, introduced the Bessemer process in 1868. In the next 30 years, our steel and iron industry increased greatly. By 1898, we had far outstripped all competitors. America's production about equaled the aggregate of England and Germany. We had also reduced costs so much that Europe talked of the American peril. It was 1898 when J.P. Morgan & Co. took their first step in forming the Steel Trust by organizing the Federal Steel Company, then followed the combination of the two mills into an $80 million corporation, J.P. Morgan & Co., taking for their syndicate services twenty million dollars of common stock. About the same time the consolidation of the bridge and structural works, the tin plate, the sheet steel, the hoop and other mills followed and finally in 1901 the steel trust was formed with a capitalization of one billion four hundred two million dollars. These combinations came 30 years after the steel industry had been initiated The telephone. The telephone industry is less than 40 years old. It is probably America's greatest contribution to industrial development. The bankers had no part in initiating it. The glory belongs to a simple, enthusiastic, warm-hearted businessman of Haverhill, Massachusetts who was willing to risk his own money. H. N. Casson tells of this most interestingly, in his history of the telephone. The man who had money and dared to stake it on the future of the telephone was Thomas Sanders, and he did this not mainly for business reasons. Both he and Hubbard were attached to Bell primarily by sentiment, as Bell had removed the blight of dumbness from Sanders' little son and was soon to marry Hubbard's daughter. Also, Sanders had no expectation at first that so much money would be needed. He was not rich. His entire business, which was that of cutting out soles for shoe manufacturers, was not at any time worth more than $35,000. Yet, from 1874 to 1878, he had advanced nine-tenths of the money that was spent on the telephone. The first 5,000 telephones and more were made with his money. And so many long, expensive months dragged by before any relief came to Sanders, that he was compelled, much against his will and his business judgment, to stretch his credit within an inch of the breaking point to help Bell and the telephone. Desperately, he signed note after note until he faced a total of $110,000. If the new scientific toy succeeded, which he often doubted, he would be the richest citizen in haverville and if it failed which he sorely feared he would be a bankrupt sanders and hubbard releasing telephones two by two to businessmen who previously had been using the private lines of the western union telegraph company this great corporation was at this time their natural and inevitable enemy it had swallowed most of its competitors and was reaching out to monopolize all methods of communication by wire the rosiest hope that shone in front of sanders and hubbard was that the union the western union might conclude to buy the bell patents just as it had already bought many others in one moment of discouragement they had offered the telephone to president orton of the western union for one hundred thousand dollars and orton had refused it What use, he said pleasantly, could this company make of an electrical toy? But besides the operation of its own wires, the Western Union was supplying customers with various kinds of printing telegraphs and dial telegraphs, some of which could transmit sixty words a minute. These accurate instruments, it believed, could never be displaced by such a scientific oddity as the telephone, and it continued to believe this until... One of its subsidiary companies, the Gold & Stock, reported that several of its machines had been superseded by telephones. At once, the Western Union awoke from its indifference. Even this tiny nibbling at its business must be stopped. It took action quickly and organized the American Speaking Telephone Company, and with $300,000 capital, and with three electrical inventors, Edison, Gray, and Dolbeer, on its staff. With all the bulk of its great wealth and prestige, it swept down upon Bell and his little bodyguard. It trampled upon Bell's patent, with as little concern as an elephant can have when he tramples upon an ant's nest. To the complete bewilderment of Bell, it coolly announced that it had the only original telephone and that it was ready to supply superior telephones with all the latest improvements made by the original inventors Dolbear, gray and edison the result was strange and unexpected the bell group instead of being driven from the field were at once lifted to a higher level in the business world and the western union in the endeavor to protect its private lines became involuntarily a bellwether to lead capitalists in the direction of the telephone. Even then, when financial aid came to the Bell enterprise, it was from capitalists, not from bankers. And among these capitalists was William H. Forbes, son of the builder of the Burlington, who became the first president of the Bell Telephone Company. That was in eighteen seventy-eight. More than twenty years later, after the telephone had spread over the world, the great house of Morgan came into financial control of the property. The American Telephone and Telegraph Company was formed. The process of combination became active. Since January nineteen hundred, its stock has increased from twenty-five million eight hundred eighty-six thousand three hundred to. 344,606,400. In six years, 1906 to 1912, the Morgan Associates marketed about $300 million bonds of that company or its subsidiaries. In that period, the volume of business done by the telephone companies had, of course, grown greatly, and the plant had to be constantly increased. But the proceeds of these sued security issues were used, to a large extent, in affecting combinations. That is, in buying out telephone competitors, in buying control of the Western Union Telegraph Company, and in buying up outstanding stock interests in semi-independent bell companies. It is these combinations which have led to the investigation of the telephone company by the Department of Justice, and they are in large part, responsible for the movement to have the government take over the telephone business. Electrical machinery. The business of manufacturing electrical machinery and apparatus is only a little over 30 years old. J.P. Morgan & Co. became interested early in one branch of it, but their dominance of the business today is due not to their initiating it, but to their effecting a combination and organizing the General Electric Company in 1892. There were then three large electrical companies, the Thompson-Houston, the Edison, and the Westinghouse, besides some small ones. The Thompson-Houston of Lynn, Massachusetts, was in many respects the leader, having been formed to introduce, among other things, important inventions of professor elihu thompson and professor houston lynn is one of the principal shoe manufacturing centers of america it is within ten miles of state street boston but thompson's early financial support came not from boston bankers but mainly from lynn businessmen and investors men active energetic and used to taking risks with their own money prominent among them was charles a coffin a shoe manufacturer who became connected with the thompson houston company upon his organization and president of the general electric when mr morgan formed that company in eighteen ninety two by combining the thompson houston and the edison to his continued service, supported by other Thompson-Houston men in high positions, the great prosperity of the company is, in large part, due. The two companies, so combined, controlled probably one-half of all electrical patents then existing in America, and certainly more than half of those which had any considerable value. In 1896, the General Electric pooled its patents with the Westinghouse and thus competition was further restricted. In 1903, the General Electric absorbed the Stanley Electric Company, its other large competitor, and became the largest manufacturer of electric apparatus and machinery in the world. In 1912, the resources of the company were 131 million nine hundred forty two thousand one hundred forty four it builds sales to the amount of eighty nine million hundred eighty two thousand one hundred eighty five it employed directly over sixty thousand persons more than a fourth as many as the steel trust and it is protected against undue competition for one of the Morgan Partners, has been a director since 1909 in the Westinghouse, the only other large electrical machinery company in America. The automobile. The automobile industry is about 20 years old. It is now America's most prosperous business. When Henry B. Joy, president of the Packard Motor Car Company, was asked... To what extent the bankers aided in initiating the automobile, he replied, It is the observable facts of history. It is also my experience of thirty years as a businessman, banker, etc. At first the seer conceives an opportunity. He has faith in his almost second sight. He believes he can do something, develop a business, construct an industry, build a railroad, or Niagara Falls Power Company and make it pay. Now, the human measure is not the actual physical construction, but the make it pay. Hmm. A man raised the money in the late 90s and built a beet sugar factory in Michigan. Wiseacres said it was nonsense. He gathered together the money from his friends who would take a chance with him he not only built the sugar factory and there was never any doubt of his ability to do that but he made it pay the next year two more sugar factories were built and were financially successful these were built by private individuals of wealth taking chances in the face of cries of doubting bankers and trust companies once demonstrated that the industry was a sound one financially And then bankers and trust companies would lend the new sugar companies, which were speedily organized a large part of the necessary funds, to construct and operate. The motor car business was the same. When a few gentlemen followed me in my vision of the possibilities of the business, the banks and older businessmen, who in the main were the banks, said fools and their money soon be parted, etc., etc., Private capital, at first, establishes an industry, backs it through its troubles, and, if possible, wins financial success when banks would not lend a dollar of aid. The business once having proved to be practical and financially successful, then do the banks lend aid to its needs. Such also was the experience of the greatest of the many financial successes in the automobile industry. The ford motor company how bankers arrest development but great banking houses have not merely failed to initiate industrial development they have definitely arrested development because to them the creation of the trusts is largely due the recital in the memorial addressed to the president by the investors guild in november nineteen eleven is significant It is a well-known fact that modern trade combinations tend strongly toward constancy of process and products, and by their very nature are opposed to new processes and new products originated by independent inventors, and hence tend to restrain competition in the development and sale of patents and patent rights, and consequently tend to discourage independent inventive thought, to the great detriment of the nation and with injustice to inventors whom the constitution especially intended to encourage and protect in their rights and more specific was the testimony of the engineering news we are today something like five years behind germany in iron and steel metallurgy and such innovations as are being introduced by our iron and steel manufacturers are most of them merely following the lead set by foreigners years ago. We do not believe this is because American engineers are are any less ingenious or original than those of Europe, though they may indeed be deficient in training and scientific education compared with those of Germany. We believe the main cause is the wholesale consolidation which has taken place in American industry, a huge organization is too clumsy to take up the development of an original idea with a market closely controlled and profits certain by following standard methods those who control our trusts do not want the bother of developing anything new we instance metallurgy only by way of illustration there are plenty of other fields of industry where exactly the same condition exists We are building the same machines and using the same methods as a dozen years ago, and the real advances in the art are being made by European inventors and manufacturers, to which President Wilson's statement may be added. I am not saying that all invention had been stopped by the growth of trusts, but I think it is perfectly clear that invention in many fields has been discouraged, that inventors have been prevented from reaping the full fruits of their ingenuity and industry, and that mankind has been deprived of many comforts and conveniences, as well as the opportunity of buying at lower prices. Do you know, have you had occasion to learn, that there is no hospitality for invention nowadays? Trusts and financial concentration. The fact that industrial monopolies arrest development is more serious even than the direct burden imposed through extortionate prices. But the most harm-bearing instance of the trusts is their promotion of financial concentration. Industrial trusts feed the money trust. Practically every trust created has destroyed the financial independence of some communities and of many properties, for it has centered the financing of a large part of whole lines of business in New York, and this usually with one of a few banking houses. This is well illustrated by the Steel Trust, which is a trust of trusts. That is, the Steel Trust combines in one huge holding company the trust previously formed in the different branches of the steel business thus the tube trust combined seventeen tube mills located in sixteen different cities scattered over five states and owned by thirteen different companies the Wire Trust combined 19 mills, the Sheet Steel Trust 26, the Bridge and Structural Trust 27, and the Tin Plate Trust 36, all scattered similarly over many states. Finally, these and other companies were formed into the United States Steel Corporation, combining 228 companies in all, located in 127 cities and towns scattered over 18 states. Before the combinations were effected, nearly every one of these companies was owned largely by those who managed it and had been financed to a large extent in the place or in the state in which it was located when the steel trust was formed all these concerns came under one management thereafter the financing of each of these two hundred twenty eight corporations and some which were later acquired had to be done through or with the consent of J.P. Morgan & Co. That was the greatest step in financial concentration ever taken. Stock Exchange Incidents The organization of trusts has served in another way to increase the power of the money trust. Few of the independent concerns out of which the trusts have been formed were listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and few of them had financial offices in New York. Promoters of large corporations whose stock is to be held by the public and also investors desire to have their securities listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Under the rules of the exchange, no security can be so listed unless the corporation has a transfer agent and registrar in New York City. Furthermore, banker directorships have contributed largely to the establishment of the financial offices of the trusts in new york city that alone would tend to financial concentration but the listing of the stock enhances the power of the money trust in another way an industrial stock once listed frequently becomes the subject of active speculation and speculation feeds the money trust indirectly in many ways it draws the money of the country to New York, the New York bankers handle the loans of other people's money on the stock exchange, and members of the stock exchange receive large amounts from commissions. For instance, there are 5,084,952 shares of United States Steel Common stock outstanding. But, in the five years ending December 31st, 1912, speculation in that stock was so extensive that there were sold on the exchange an average of 29,380,888 shares a year, or nearly six times as much as there is steel common in existence. Except where the transactions are by or for the broker's sales on the exchange involve the payment of 25 cents in commission for each share of stock sold, that is twelve and one half cents by the seller and twelve and one cents by the buyer. Thus, the commission from the steel common alone afforded a revenue averaging many millions a year. The steel preferred stock is also much traded in, and there are hundred thirty-eight other industrials, largely trusts, listed. On the New York Stock Exchange. Trust ramifications. But the potency of trusts as a factor in financial concentration is manifested in still other ways, notably through their ramifying operations. This is illustrated forcibly by the General Electric Company's control of water power companies, which has now been disclosed in an able report of the United States Bureau of Corporations. The extent of the General Electric influence is not fully revealed by its consolidated balance sheet. A very large number of corporations are connected with it through its subsidiaries and through corporations controlled by these subsidiaries or affiliated with them. There is a still wider circle of influence due to the fact that officers and directors of the General Electric Co. and its subsidiaries are also officers or directors of many other corporations, some of whose securities are owned by the General Electric Company. The General Electric Company holds, in the first place, all the common stock in three security holding companies the United Electric Securities Company, the Electrical Securities Corporation, and the Electric Bond and Share Company directly. And through these corporations and their officers, the General Electric controls a large part of the water power of the United States. The water power companies in the General Electric group are found in 18 states. These 18 states have 2,325,757 commercial horsepower developed or under construction. And this total... The General Electric Group includes 939,115 HP, or 40.4%. The greatest amount of power controlled by the companies in the General Electric Group in any state is found in Washington. This is followed by New York, Pennsylvania, California, Montana, Iowa, Oregon, and Colorado. In five of the states shown in the table, the water power companies included in the General Electric Group control more than 50% of the commercial power developed and under construction. The percentage of power in the states included in the General Electric Group ranges from a little less than 2%. In Michigan, to nearly 80% in Pennsylvania. In Colorado, they control 72% in New Hampshire, 61%, in Oregon, 58%, and in Washington, 55%. Besides the power developed and under construction, water power concerns included in the General Electric Group own in the state shown in the table 641,600 HP undeveloped. This water power control enables the General Electric Group to control other public service corporations. The water power companies subject to General Electric influence control the street railways in at least 16 cities and towns, the electric light plants in 78 cities and towns, gas plants in 19 cities and towns, and are affiliated with the electric light and gas plants in other towns. Though many of these communities, particularly those served with light only, are small, several of them are the most important in the states where these water power companies operate the water power companies in the general electric group own control or are closely affiliated with the street railways in portland and salem oregon spokane washington great falls montana st louis missouri winona minnesota milwaukee and racine wisconsin elmira New York, Asheville and Raleigh, North Carolina, and other relatively less important towns. The towns in which the lighting plants, electric or gas, are owned or controlled include Portland, Salem, Astoria, and other towns in Oregon. Bellingham and other towns in Washington, Butte, Great Falls, Bozeman and other towns in Montana, Leadville and Carlos Springs in Colorado, St. Louis, Missouri, Milwaukee, Racine, and several small towns in Wisconsin, Hudson and Rensselaer, New York, Detroit, Michigan, Asheville, and Raleigh, North Carolina, and in fact... One or more towns in practically every community where developed water power is controlled by this group. In addition to the public service corporations thus controlled by the water power companies subject to general electric influence, there are numerous public service corporations in other municipalities that purchase power from the hydroelectric developments controlled by or affiliated with the general electric company. This is true of Denver, Colorado, which has already been discussed. In Baltimore, Maryland, a water power concern in the General Electric Group, namely the Pennsylvania Water and Power Company, sells 20,000 HP to the Consolidated Gas, Electric Light, and Power Company, which controls the entire light and power business of that city. The power to operate all the electric street railway systems of Buffalo, New York, and the General Electric Company, through the financing of public service companies exercises a like influence in communities where there is no water-power it or its subsidiaries has acquired control of or an interest in the public service corporations of numerous cities where there is no water-power connection and it is affiliated with still others by virtue of common directors this vast network of relationships between hydroelectric corporations through prominent officers and directors, the largest manufacturer of electrical machinery and supplies in the United States is highly significant. It is possible that this relationship to such a large number of strong financial concerns through prominent officers and directors affords the General Electric Company an advantage that may place rivals... At a corresponding disadvantage, whether or not this great financial power has been used to the particular disadvantage of any rival water power concerned is not so important as the fact that such power exists and that it might be so used at any time. The Sherman Law. The money trust cannot be broken if we allow its power to be constantly augmented. To break the money trust, we must stop that power at its source. The industrial trusts are among its most effective feeders. Those which are illegal should be dissolved. The creation of new ones should be prevented. To this end, the Sherman law should be supplemented both by providing more efficient judicial machinery and by creating a commission with administrative functions to aid in enforcing the law. When that is done, another step will have been taken toward securing the new freedom but restrictive legislation alone will not suffice we should bear in mind the admonition with which the commissioner of corporations closes his review of our water power development there is presented such a situation in water powers and other public utilities as might bring about at any time under a single management the control of a majority of the developed water powers in the United States and similar control over the public utilities in a vast number of cities and towns, including some of the most important in the country. We should conserve all rights which the federal government and the states now have in our natural resources, and there should be a complete separation of our industries from railroads and public utilities. End of chapter 7. Recording by... John Thomas Kuz, Kuzmarski, Kuz, www.validateyourlife.com.